You got to risk it to get the biscuit. My name is Pastor Jake. I'm the lead pastor at Great Oaks Community Church. That's a line from a movie I've never seen that's probably not worth watching, but I like it. Uh, You got to risk it to get the biscuit. I think I like it because I like biscuits a lot. I grew up in the South where we ate biscuits a lot, and it wasn't a meal until there was gravy involved. Before that, it was just a snack. Got to risk it to get the biscuit. I have a family of six, but because of foster care, sometimes we have more than that. And so mealtime at my house is, is pretty interesting. Sometimes you have to literally risk it to get the biscuit. There's not enough biscuits for everybody to have another one, and you got to step out there. you got to reach out, and it's dangerous. i got some hungry people at my house. So sometimes that's a literal thing, but most of the time that phrase and phrases like it are just saying that there is no reward apart from risk right? You got to risk it to get the biscuit. We're in a series of messages called Not for Sunday School, where I'm just taking on seven different passages, seven different stories in the Bible that you probably didn't hear about in Sunday School. You may have heard about them, but you didn't get the whole story. And I'm telling you you the rest of the story. Or maybe you got the made-for-TV version. Last week, uh, we talked about the walking dead that we so often gloss over in Matthew chapter 27. If you missed that, uh, make sure you go get that online. Today, I'm going to talk to you about something that happens in Judges, in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a crazy, gory, graphic book of the Bible. I mean, it has violence and war and rampant sexual depravity, but it's also got some pretty cool like Avengers, Matrix, Braveheart type scenes in it. Like there's a guy named Shamgar. I'm thinking about naming my next kid Shamgar. I call him Shammy. Shammy takes on 600 Philistines by himself with a long stick and he whoops them all. Usually one on 600 doesn't work for the one, right? And then there's Samson. He's also in the book of Judges. He gets all hulked out a bunch of times. One time he rips a lion in two with his bare hands. Another time, imagine this, he captures 300 foxes, he ties them together, their tails together, two by two, lights them on fire and lets them go. I mean, it's crazy. And then he defeats a thousand Philistines, just him. He defeats a thousand Philistines with only the jaw of a donkey as a weapon. The book of Judges is crazy. I love it. It's an awesome book of the Bible. But One of the things I'm always trying to do as your pastor is to help you better study and understand the Bible for yourself. Because if I can preach a message, if I can feed you something in a sermon that gives you nourishment for a while, that's good. But if I can teach you and help you to dig deep into the scriptures yourself, find out what they mean in their context and how to apply that, if I can teach you how to feed yourself, that's even better. And one of, the, one of the mistakes I see people make with reading and understanding the Bible is that they read it as a book of people they should emulate, as a book of people to copy. Um, even enemies of the Bible will read it this way, and they'll say sarcastically, oh yeah, the Bible's great, like it condones incest and polygamy and violence and war and deception and all of that. The Bible's great. And And they're talking about the Old Testament, right? They're talking about maybe even Judges itself. But if you're reading the book of Judges, 
as a book of heroes to copy, you're reading it wrong. And these are messed up people. I mean, the, the book of Judges, it gets worse and worse as it goes on until at the very end, it seems right and good to everybody for the Benjamites, the men of the, the tribe of Benjamin to go to a nearby city and steal a bunch of women to be their wives. I mean, it gets, it gets crazy. If you're reading it as a book of heroes to copy, you're reading it wrong. We have to move past that Sunday school version of reading the Bible. Not everyone in the Bible, not every action taken by people in the Bible, even people of authority and people of influence is one that we should copy. We gotta move past that Sunday school version of reading the Bible. These are broken people whose stories should not be plucked from their context and understood apart from the rest of the Bible. They're messed up people. The book of Judges and a lot of the Old Testament is, is showing us what happens when sinful people like me and you are left to our own devices. That's what the book of Judges is really about. There's a phrase that gets repeated starting about halfway through the book of Judges, and it goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is just after the people enter into the promised land, the exodus from Egypt has happened, all the plagues and the signs and the wonders and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that. And it's just after that, and already they've given themselves over to idol worship and sinful desires, and they've abandoned God's law, and everybody's just doing what seems right in their own eyes. And so God raises up these judges to keep the nation of Israel alive, to preserve their lives. And so he does that for that reason, and also to show us and everybody that no person sinful like them can actually save them. And in the middle of these judges, we have a guy named Gideon. You've probably heard of Gideon. Um, the account of Gideon is in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. Make sure you read those um, this week and, and check out this account in more detail. But I'll, I'll point some things out um, here. The, the, the Sunday school version of the Gideon story uh, just, just doesn't really hold up. I mean, Gideon, from the beginning, proves himself to be a faithless coward. Um, he is unwilling to trust God, unwilling to step out in faith, unwilling to risk anything for God. I mean, just check out the beginning of his story in Judges chapter 6. Um, it starts out bad in, in, in in this situation, in Judges chapter 6, the Israelites are oppressed and enslaved by a nation called the Midianites, okay? And, and so things look really bad. Um, there's a lot of idol worship going on. And, and so God decides to raise Gideon up as a judge to, to change things. And we're introduced to Gideon in Judges 6 as he's hiding wheat in a wine press from the Midianites, Judges 6, starting in verse 12, says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And there are all his, where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up? 
from Egypt. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But, but I'll be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Okay, so he's talking to an angel. And I love how this angel is just so encouraging, and he doesn't lose his positivity. Right? Have you ever tried to encourage someone who just isn't having it? Like, they're going to be Eeyore no matter what you say. They're going to be stuck in their funk no matter what you do or what you say. That, that's how I read this situation with Gideon and this angel. The angel starts out with, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, please, the Lord isn't with us. Come on. Our fathers talk about how the Lord's with us and he's done all these mighty things. Please, he's gone. The Midianites are winning. We're enslaved, please. The angel is undeterred in his positivity. He looks at Gideon. I imagine he's thinking as an angel, like, yeah, but I'm an angel, and I'm here, and I'm an angel. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he's positive, and he goes, go in this might of yours and save Israel. He stays positive. Gideon, again, please, I can't do it. I can't. I'm the least of my clan. My clan's the least in Manasseh. I can't. Please, I'm not going to save anybody. And the angel is still positive. He goes, Gideon, I'll be with you. And I'll strike the Midian, Midianites. I'll help you. I'll do it. He remains positive the entire time. And then look at what happens next. It is mind-boggling. Gideon is talking to an angel of the Lord. And look at verse 17. And Gideon said to the angel, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. What? You want, Gideon, you want a sign? I, I'm an angel. This is the sign. I am an angel here speaking to you. This, this is what you want a sign? I'm the sign. But the angel agrees, and basically Gideon makes him lunch. He brings it back out, the angel's waiting, and then look at what happens in verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now Gideon gets it. Now he knows this is an angel of the Lord who's been talking to him. But even then, even now that he knows that, he doesn't respond with gratitude or faith or confidence. He responds again with negativity and fear, and he thinks he's going to die because he's seen the angel. And God basically says, no, Gideon, no. Remember, remember how the angel said, I'm going to use you to defeat Midian? Like, I need you alive for that, so you're not going to die. And then after this, God, God, gives, God gives Gideon his first mission. So he's sent an angel. The angel's done like a little trick to give him some some confidence, like, okay, he's an angel from the Lord. God's talking to him directly. 
Now it's time for Gideon's first mission. So he tells Gideon, okay, Gideon, I want you to, I want you to take some bulls from your dad, and I want you to go down to the altar of Baal, the false god that you and your family and this clan and this town has been worshiping. I want you to go down, take the bulls down there and to the altar of Baal, and I want you to destroy it. I want you to use the bulls to destroy the altar of Baal. That's the mission that God gives Gideon. After an angel has come, after he's spoken to him directly, after there's been this sign with the lunch that Gideon made for the angel. Look at what happens in verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Are you getting an idea of who Gideon is? I imagine Gideon's angel up in heaven watching this take place. So close. Man, it's hard to root for your boy Gideon, God. He's, just when you think he's going to do something right, he does that. I mean, he did it. He did it. You're right. But he did it at night because he's so scared. Come on, Gideon. But it worked. It incited a war between Midian and Israel. And, and fast forward a little bit, and we have we have Gideon looking strong. He is clothed in the spirit of the Lord. He calls tribes of Israel to come and, and go to battle with him. He musters this great army. I mean, almost overnight, he's gone from nobody, like he said, the least in his clan, clans the least in Manasseh. He's gone from almost nobody to this great leader. And things are looking really good. And, and the Amalekites and the Midianites muster their army. And there's going to be a showdown and I just imagine that angel, Gideon's angel, back up in heaven going, all right, Gideon, you got this. Gideon's looking strong, God. Maybe I was wrong. He's looking strong down there. Come on, Gideon. Judges 6, 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. What? Gideon, no, Gideon, no. We are mission hot here, Gideon. Look at the soldiers. We're about to go to battle. I already told you that God was going to give the Midianites, and you know, Gideon, flea, water on the fleece and not a, no, no, we don't have time to play fleece games, Gideon. Just go to battle. But Gideon still isn't sure. So he asked God to do this sign. Look at verse 38. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And so God plays the fleece game. In his grace, he plays the fleece game with Gideon. The angel in heaven is probably like, okay, now we're good. He asked for the fleece sign. He's going to be good now. Look at all that water that God put on that fleece. Surely we're good to go now. Let's do this. Let's go to battle. But he still doesn't. Look at verse 39. Look at verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground. 
let there be dew. Oh my, Gabriel, are you kidding me? Come on, Gideon. Wait, can we find someone else, God? This guy is ridiculous. He wants to play the fleece game again. Surely there's someone else. Oh my, Gabriel. God again plays the fleece game with with Gideon, and he does this miracle. What's ha what happens next is really interesting. Make sure you read it this afternoon to get all the details. But basically, in response to, to Gideon's lack of faith, God requires more faith. In response to Gideon's inability and unwillingness to risk anything for God, God requires more risk from Gideon. He, he whittles his army down from 22,000 to 300 men. And God is going to give the victory to Israel through these 300 men. They're going to they're gonna defeat the whole army of the Amalekites and the Midianites. And it's so that God gets the credit. He wants everybody to know that it's he who will win this battle and give this, give this victory. And so they're about to, God's about to do this with these 300 men. And he's going to tell Gideon to go and fight with these 300 men. And this night, right now, I'm going to give you the victory. But God's had a few conversations with Gideon at this point, right? And they've all basically gone like this. God makes a proclamation, go do this thing. Gideon doubts. God says, I'll be with you. Gideon doubts and asks for a sign. God gives him the sign, and finally Gideon might do it, maybe, right? That's basically what's happening. This time, God kind of heads that off at the pass. He cuts to the chase. Look at chapter 7 of Judges, starting in verse 9, that same night the Lord said to him, Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. So that's the proclamation. This is where Gideon would usually doubt and ask for a sign, and there'd be this back and forth. But God doesn't give him the chance. He just goes, but, go down. I've given them, given them into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So God's like, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to defeat the whole Midianite army with just you 300. And it's going to be this awesome thing, and I'm going to do it, but I know you're not going to believe me, even though I'm God. And so I've already, you're going to ask for a sign, I've already set up a sign, all right? If you are scared, because I know you're going to be scared, Go down with your servant, and I want you to listen to a conversation. Just listen, and you'll be strengthened to do what I want you to do. I've set this whole sign thing up for you ahead of time. And so Gideon goes down to the camp with his servant, and he overhears two Midianite soldiers talking about a dream that one of them had. And the interpretation of the dream is basically that Gideon's about to roll into the camp and defeat everybody. Gideon's going to get this great victory. And so Gideon hears this conversation. That's the sign that the Lord gives him. And he's now emboldened and strengthened. And so he goes back to his army of 300 and they do what God tells them to do. They go and they, they win. They win the battle. God wins the battle. And they defeat the whole army of the Midianites and the Amalekites and all of that. God gives them this great victory. And, and that a lot of times that's... That's the end, right? That's the end of the Sunday school version of the Gideon story. And people will even, will even use this show me a sign approach to hearing God and obeying God. They'll, they'll use it as an example to follow, as something we need to copy and emulate. But that's not the end. 
That's not the end of Gideon's story. Gideon's story ends with him gathering up all the gold rings from like over 100,000 soldiers that they had defeated. The plunder, gathering the golden rings, melting it down and making an ephod. An ephod is something that the priest would wear and Gideon had no business making one. And this ephod becomes an idol that the whole nation of Israel will worship. Look at Judges 8, 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it, of the gold, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Sometimes, sometimes the Sunday school version isn't all that correct. Throughout Gideon's story, he proves himself to, to be a faithless coward, unwilling to obey God without proof after proof after proof, unwilling to obey God in faith, right? Unwilling to take any risks. Gideon is not, not an example to follow. The point here is not be like Gideon. The point is trust in God like Gideon failed to do. Have faith in God like Gideon failed to have faith in God. And so if you're putting out a fleece in front of the Lord, if you're asking for a sign before you'll obey what he's told you to do, that's not an indication of faith. That's an indication of doubt. Let me, let me show you one other thing. I want to compare what Gideon does right before this huge battle with Midian, his actions and his prayers, this whole fleece thing. I want to compare that with another person who's in a similar situation against similar odds. The other person, his name is, is Jonathan. Head over to 1 Samuel 14, or 1 Samuel yeah, 14. Um, so Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Uh, here's what's happening with Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. King Saul is the first king of Israel. And at this time, the Israelites are in this years-long war with the Philistines. And, and it's desperate. The situation is absolutely desperate. The, the Israelite army has no swords, uh, so they're using sickles and plowshares. Um, they've somehow found two swords. Saul carries one. Jonathan carries the other. Jonathan is kind of one of the leaders of the army. And so it's desperate. It's very similar to what Gideon is facing back in Judges. Jonathan, this is 80 years later, is now facing this same kind of horrible odds. By everybody's best guess, they're about to die. They're going to lose. They're about to go to battle with the Philistines, and they're going to lose. But Jonathan is not Gideon. Jonathan, he goes over to the Philistine garrison just to kind of see what's happening, just to see what God is going to do. He takes one guy with him. Look at 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What? That's different, isn't it? 
That's different. He's, he's facing some of the same kind of odds as Gideon was facing. But Gideon, Gideon had an angel. He had conversations with God. He had a direct word from God. Go down to the camp. Take the Midianites right now. He had all of that. And yet Gideon's response was to go, uh, gee, I just, I'm just not sure. Here, here's an idea. I'm going to put a fleece out and you put some water on it and make everything else dry, and then I'll go. Oh, you did it? Okay, I'm, I, now I'm going to put the, just one more. I'm going to put the fleece out, and if you dry it up and make everything else wet, then I'll go. Jonathan has no fleece, no angel, no direct word from the Lord, and he just goes over to the garrison of the Philistines and goes, Who knows? God could work a great victory. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Who can hinder the Lord? No one can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Wow. Back to Gideon's angel up in heaven. This is 80 years later. I just imagine him kind of minding his own business, and then he notices what Jonathan is doing. What's that? Hold up. Is that, is that Jonathan down there? What's he doing? Is he the, Gabriel, Michael, get over here. Check this out. Is that Jonathan? Is he going from the, the Israelite camp over to the, the Philistine camp? What's he doing? Did we, we didn't tell him to do that, did we? No, I didn't, I didn't think so. Did, whoa, did you hear the, those big words he just used? He said he's, he's going to go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Man, that's bold. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come, come over and check this thing out. Well, hold up, did he, just, did he just say what I think he said? Did he just say that who knows the Lord may work a victory for us? He, he may work for us that nothing can hinder, that no one can hinder the Lord from, from saving by many or by few? Whoa, that is some ridiculous faith. That is, we never see faith like that, do we, Michael? I mean, we're at Gabriel. You, you and I are always telling people what to do. We got to tell them over and over and over. You guys remember Gideon? I had to tell him a bunch of times what to do, show him signs to get him. We didn't even tell this guy to do anything, and he's already going over with all that faith. Are we going to help him? Are we going to leave him out to dry? Are we going to help him? We're going to help him, right? Like, we haven't seen that kind of faith in a long time. We're going to help him, aren't we? Imagine God going, of course, of course we're going to help him. Of course we're going to save Israel. We're going to use the faith of Jonathan. By Jonathan's faith, we will save them. We're going to use the faith of Jonathan, of Jonathan as a means by which to save the whole nation of Israel. Look at verse 13, 1 Samuel 14, verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. Verse 14. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. The Lord gives Jonathan this supernatural ability to whoop up on 20 Philistines with just one other guy. This amazing thing happens and then there's panic in the camp and the earth begins to shake and it results in the Israelites winning, winning the battle, defeating the Philistines and, and getting themselves out from under slavery. 
at the hands of the Philistines. It's this amazing moment. I mean, Jonathan risks everything, goes to the camp of the enemy with one other guy, just saying, maybe God will do something. We'll see. It reminds me, it reminds me of something Jesus said a few times in the gospel accounts. The first time he said it was in Luke 8 when a desperate woman touches the edge of his clothes. This woman was sick, had been sick for years, had no hope of getting better. But she knew that if she could just touch Jesus, she would be healed. So she didn't wait in line. She didn't ask for permission. She didn't put a fleece out before the Lord. She didn't say what a lot of us say. Oh, I'll pray about it and see what happens. She didn't do that. She knew that she had to do everything she could, anything she could to get to Jesus. And so she, she pressed through this crowd to touch Jesus. And she touched just the edge of his clothes and she was healed immediately. And Jesus in this big crowd kind of stops and he, in Luke chapter 8 and he, he looks for her and he, he finds her and she ends up on the ground trembling before Jesus. She's scared Should I have done that? Maybe Jesus is going to be mad. I don't know. It seemed like the risk was worth it, but I'm not sure now. Jesus says something to her that he eventually says multiple times in the gospel accounts. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. I imagine that Jesus, we're back there in 1 Samuel 14 in bodily form. He would have said the same thing to Jonathan, something similar. Jonathan, your faith has saved you. Or maybe your faith has saved Israel. Faith is, faith is moving before you're sure. Faith is moving before there's proof. It's taking a step of obedience, not knowing the outcome. It's Faith is obedience despite risk. Faith is is risking what's in your hand to potentially get something greater, right? That makes sense. You got to risk it to get the biscuit. There is no reward apart from risk. It makes sense. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Jonathan would agree. I think Gideon would agree with that definition of faith. It seemed like Gideon was consumed with the idea that he would have to let go of something. He would lose something. And he may not gain anything in return. He may not get anything out of it. He seemed to be so focused on the risk that he was going to have to risk something that it caused him to be plagued with doubt and ask for sign after sign after sign and hesitate and and all, all of that. He was, he was weighing the options. It seemed like he, he would agree with the fact, the idea that faith is risking what's in your hand to potentially get, to potentially get something greater. It's about weighing the odds. But I don't think Jonathan would agree. It seemed like Jonathan wasn't focused on the risk. And maybe Jonathan understood that, that whatever he had... It wasn't really his. Maybe he understood that apart from God, he really didn't have anything. That apart from God, he really didn't have anything to risk anyways. Here's what I'm saying. Maybe faith isn't risking what's in your hand, risking what you have to potentially get something greater. Maybe faith is realizing 
that what's in your hand isn't yours at all. That you really don't have anything. And therefore, you don't have any control. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe faith, maybe faith is a revelation that there's no safer place for you to be than in the middle of God's will for your life. Maybe that's it. That sounds good, right? Faith is a revelation that there's no safer place for you to be, no better place for you to be than in the middle of God's will for your life. I don't know. I, maybe it's simpler than that. Maybe that's not it. Maybe, maybe it's simpler. Maybe faith is just surrendering to God. And then that, that surrender, that causes us to, to take steps of obedience without worrying about the risk. That complete surrender, it, it causes us to say things like Jonathan said, who knows? Maybe the, the Lord will work for us. Who, who knows? No one can hinder him by saving, by saving through a little or through many. Maybe that surrender then causes us to fight crowds and insecurity and shame and doubt just to touch Jesus. You got to risk it to get the biscuit. I love that phrase, but if you think, if you think that faith is about risking something, I'm praying that God, that the Holy Spirit would give you a new angle, a new perspective, that you would realize that spiritually speaking, eternally speaking, and the only way that really matters, there actually is no risk in running after God praying the big prayer, going after the big victory, risking it all, giving it all. There really is no risk in running after God, that the only risk is in holding back. No matter how you're joining us today, if it's in your living room or you're at a kitchen table or you're on a phone or a tablet or whatever, I want to invite you for the next couple of minutes as best as you can to enter into a quiet moment of prayer with me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that speaks to us. Thank you, God, that it is both timeless and timely, that it never changes and it always changes us. Pray, Jesus, like I always do, that whatever was of me today would be quickly forgotten and whatever was of you would stick with us and haunt us and change us. Would like good seed find good soil in the hearts of many and bear fruit. Lord, I'm asking that you would help us surrender to you. Holy Spirit, would you reveal in our hearts, the, hearts of, the heart of every person listening, God, would you reveal where it is we need to surrender, where it is we need to move from a doubt like Gideon to a faith like Jonathan. Help us to see that, God. What are we scared of? As we continue in an attitude of prayer, let me just ask you that question. 
What are you scared of? Gideon was scared of a lot of things. What are you scared of? What has you doubting? What has you holding back? What has you asking God for a sign before you'll be faithful, before you'll obey? What are you scared of? Are you scared of losing something that you're holding on to? Are you scared of losing finances, losing influence, losing comfort and convenience? What are you scared of losing if you were to step out in faith and obey what God is telling you to do? Whatever it is, realize this. There is no risk in running after God. That if you would, if the Holy Spirit would widen your perspective, you would see that the only risk is in holding back. So whatever it is, I want to call you to a greater faith today. A greater faith. Surrender whatever it is that you're scared of losing. Whatever it is you're scared of risking, surrender it because it's not yours to begin with. There's no safer place to be than right where God wants you. Obedience brings freedom. Maybe, maybe you've never surrendered to God. You're looking at this faith of Jonathan and you're going, man, he had something I don't, I don't have. And that's, he surrendered to God completely. I've never done that. Maybe that's you. I, I want to invite you into a, a decision moment right now. It doesn't matter where you are. You don't need to be in a church building. You don't need to have a priest or a pastor next to you. You just need to have a heart that wants to change, a heart that wants to surrender to God. So I want to invite you to make that decision right now, once and for all, to give your life over to Jesus, to begin following him, to go from darkness to light today, to go from a, from a person who's, who's running after the things of this world to a person who has given their life over to Jesus and is running after him. Just close your eyes wherever you're at and pray. Ask God to help you surrender completely, to put your faith in him, to make him the Lord and leader of your life. Then after you say that prayer, let us know. And if you're watching online at, at greatoaks.online, there's a, a little thing in the chat that says, raise your hand if you wanna give your life to Jesus. Just click on that. We'd love to know that you wanna give your life to Jesus today, you wanna to commit your life to Jesus so that we can pray for you. There's also a button that says to, to ask for prayer. Click on that. We'd love to pray for you individually. Maybe you look around the room that you're in and you tell a spouse or a, a dad or a mom or a brother or a sister or a friend the decision you just made. Maybe you contact us in another way, but we would love to pray for you and help you in your journey towards Christ as you take these first steps. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for those who right now would make a decision to surrender, some for the first time to surrender their lives over to you. Give them the boldness to tell others about that. Thank you for those who would surrender things in their lives that they're holding on to. Maybe they've given their lives to you, but they, they're more like Gideon than Jonathan, scared and doubtful. Lord, I ask that you would give them a faith like Jonathan, that they would surrender completely and trust you no matter what. We love you, we give all this into your hands and we trust you with it. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, make sure you talk this over with your life group. We're still meeting in life groups in Zoom and people are jumping into life groups. It's a great time to get involved. If you're not in a life group, that just means you haven't gotten plugged in at Great Oaks. 
We'd love for you to get plugged in. Just let us know. Uh, click on a link that you'll see in the comments there and that'll send you to life groups. And uh, you can let us know that you wanna get in a life group and we'll help you get into that. As always, my challenge to you today is to leave here, to close out this browser, to turn off your TV, to move from your living room to your kitchen or whatever, to leave here not dismissed, but sent. Be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. Sing with us.